Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back. This is Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm the founder of the Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life. If you don't have a free copy of that book, please head over to themissiondrivenmom.com and you'll be able to opt in for a free copy where you'll learn the seven laws of life mission and how to live them. We would love to grow this podcast and our reach to moms everywhere, and you can help us in that endeavor. Make sure to subscribe, to share out these podcasts if they're of benefit to you, write us a review, and we'd love to have you join the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group and get to know you and be part of the after the show discussions in that group. Today I have the privilege and honor of talking about a woman who I have admired for a long time, a woman that you've heard of and probably heard a lot about, maybe you've even read about her or watched a movie on her. But I did some research a while ago I wanted to learn more about her childhood. She wouldn't, she finally authorized a couple biographies, but she wouldn't write an autobiography. She said it wasn't her story, it was God's story. She didn't like to talk about herself. So it was hard to really pull information out of her and get really the facts of her life. And I finally found a book by David Porter called Mother Teresa, The Early Years. And boy, it was fascinating to see insights into her childhood that really formed and fashioned who she became and empowered her to live these four foundational laws of life mission at a very early age, enabling her to hear her first and then her second call and to fulfill those missions that had that God had for her. So I want to talk to you about what happened early on, how she learned to live those four foundational laws, and then a little bit about how the first and second calls came, because her life does truly exemplify the seven laws of life mission. And of course, she's had a profound influence on the world. At the beginning of this book, the author says, the story of Mother Teresa's childhood and youth is quite simply a demonstration of how God can take the life of any individual who is willing to offer it to him and make of it something quite literally superhuman in its power and its effectiveness. This is a story of the making of a child of God. Absolutely loved that. So I want to start this story the way the author starts it, and that is with her father. Now, her father came from a family of merchants. He, his extended family was well off and he had learned skills in trade and uh, business. His name was, I don't know if you say it, Cole or Cole Boyaxu. <laughs> it's really hard to pronounce. And um, that, was, that was Mother Teresa's maiden name, her father. Um, first name was Agnes. And of course she renamed herself Mother Teresa, but we'll get to that in a little bit. He was a successful merchant and he had political interests. He sympathized with Albanian patriots and gave them financial support and hospitality. And so he was interested in the freedom of Albania. And eventually when they run their freedom in 1912, he had a huge celebration at his home that his son Lazar 
who was his oldest, never forgot. He often entertained his patriot friends. He loved to sit late in the night and talk about Albanian freedom. And he also taught himself four, he also learned four languages so he could communicate uh, with many different people. He had moved to a town called, I think you say it, Skopje, or I, I didn't look up the, <laughs> the pronunciation, so forgive me, that's probably wrong. Uh, but they lived in, um, in this town in, and from in Albania and he when they moved there he bought a house he had this brilliant entrepreneurial flair and when he first got there he was working for a doctor selling medicine and he kind of became known as a pharmacist and was having a lot of success in that but then he decided to partner with a friend in the building trade and it was a wealthy background to a comfortable uh, comfortable childhood so he learned these skills of business from his parents um the his on his father's side there uh was a a grandmother who had exceptional gifts in craftsmanship and management she ran an embroidery business which employed a large number of workers and she and her husband had built up family fortunes considerably before handing them on to cole and and so he had a fortune, he had money anyway, to begin with, and he was able to grow that money through his successful business interests. And so he traveled a lot throughout Europe and was gone quite often. Um, he was buying and selling all over the place and would bring back goods and that kind of stuff. There were three children in the family. Uh, Agnes was the youngest, the oldest was Laser, and the middle was Aga, a sister. And... Their father was an incredibly devoted father. He would come home with lavish gifts for his children. He was an entertaining storyteller and very funny. And they would look forward to him coming home and staying up late in the night telling all these all of his adventures on his travels. He was also a very strict parent, a severe disciplinarian. He has very high expectations of his children and he was very interested in their education. So education was of huge importance in um, her formative years. And in fact, his friends and neighbors considered him a man of very progressive ideas because he educated his two daughters in addition to his sons, which was very unusual at the time. And often he would come home in the evening and go up to Laser's bedroom where he would wake his son and demand whether he had been a good boy at school and regularly examined him in the subjects he was studying in his classes. The children really stood in awe of him. Agnes was the youngest and had a really special relationship with him that was a little closer. And he would all, often tell his children, never forget whose children you are. So this educational foundation was in place, but he also had other traits that were a big part of those four foundational laws, love of God, self, truth and humanity that were part of her upbringing. He contributed generously to Christian work and the clergy often visited him and thanked him for his generosity. He, even though he was constantly traveling, his family knew he was a committed Christian and the church was very close to his heart. I don't know um, if it was his parents or his grandparents that had um, joined the Christian the Catholic faith, but it was a big part of their lives and they were brought up on belief in Christ and the Catholic church. 
He was also very generous in the community. He distributed food and money to many people without drawing attention to the fact. And his son often received parcels of money, clothes, and food with instructions that they were to be given to the poor. His door was always open to those who needed food, shelter, and care. He was especially fond of an old woman who was regularly welcomed into their home for meals. Welcome her lovingly, he commanded his children. He taught his family about the need for generosity and compassion, and he taught them to work hard at school. He often admonished Agnes when she was very young. My daughter, never take a morsel of food that you are not prepared to share with others. So this foundation of love of God and self and truth and humanity was a big part of the way her father saw the world and the way he raised his children and the kind of culture that the family was built upon. They took good care of themselves and enjoyed the things that they had and met their own needs, but they were also incredibly generous and made education a top priority. Her father, of course, lived many, many principles, really loved truth. He was a devoted father, a devoted Christian, um, devoted to education. He clearly lived financial principles as the family was, um, was so well off and his business flourished. So she was taught those things and watched those things in her home. But then when she was eight years old, tragedy struck. Her father um, had been to Belgrade with his fellow city councilors to attend a meeting. So he was he also served in the government. I forgot to say that. He served um, on the city council and in other, in other ways in the community and was really seen as an important leader and important member of their community for his generosity, for his business leadership, and also for his community leadership. So he had been to Belgrade to this meeting, and while there, he was taken gravely ill. He arrived home in the early evening, having been brought in a carriage. He was rushed to a hospital where the next morning he underwent an emergency operation, but it was unsuccessful, and the next day he died. So it was this incredibly sad time for the family, but also for the community. He had built their city's first theater. He had been a man of wide interests and many charities. And so the funeral was very, very um, well attended. The whole community mourned alongside the family at his loss. Now, her Agnes's mother's name was Drana. She came from a, a kind of a middle-class family and also a, a very devoted Christian family. And she and her husband had the same ideas about life and the same commitment to the same principles. And what happened after their father died, he owned several homes and he had several interests that carried the family's finances for a little while but eventually, because he wasn't there doing business and Drana didn't know how to take on his responsibilities in the business, his partner pulled away from the family and stopped paying them anything for what he was doing in the business. He just inherited the business upon, upon uh, Cole's death. And so over time, they became more and more impoverished. And Drana had to find a way to provide for her children. She wanted them to still be comfortable and have the things that they needed and some of the things that they wanted. And so she took on sewing um, and that became the business that she did. She was determined that the children not be deprived. 
She took up sewing and embroidery and made fine clothes, wedding dresses, and costumes for feasts and festivals. And so she had this really great skill and was able to provide for her three children. What's interesting is that she also came from this wealthier family and there were estates that she should have been able to inherit money from her from her family, from her parents. And at one point, uh, the parish priest came over, uh, was talked to Laser and said, why does your mother not take an interest in the family property? And so he went to his mother and said, don't you inherit something from your family? Shouldn't you have some money there? And she explained that there was some dispute within her family as to whom the estates belonged. And she didn't possess any documents establishing her rights. So even though she could have tried to go to court and put up a fight and try to somehow prove that some of the money and and property belonged to her, she didn't have the legal proof and the family wasn't forthcoming and in offering that to her. And so she just let it go and she just provided for her family on her own. It showed her children a powerful example of how a Christian handles disappointment and assesses the importance to be placed on worldly possessions. Because she could have gotten bitter, she could have gotten angry, she could have expended all her time in fighting her family and doing damage to those relationships, but instead she just took care of her own and let it go. And that is such that was an incredible example because they had lived so well until this time, and now they had to make cutbacks and live more conservatively eventually much more conservatively and she was okay with that and you know what's amazing (laughs) what's even more amazing is that she didn't stop being charitable she didn't stop giving as much as she possibly could just as her husband had she was still famous for the important things that she did for the poor kindness gentleness generosity and compassion her faith was very deep and central to her life And she was not strict with her children. She just tried to set a good example for them. She had um, practical personal piety. The family prayed together every day. And she went on to set this incredible example for her family in the way she treated the poor. And I was just blown away when I read this next section about the way her mother, um, about the generosity of her mother in the community. So Almost always at dinner, there was a guest at the table. And when she would ask her mother who they were, her mother would say, some are relatives, but all of them are our people. And Agnes said, when I was older, I realized that the strangers were poor people who had nothing and whom my mother was feeding. So she gave money. She gave food. And she also gave time. And this is what is so fascinating. Um, She gave her daughters practical training in helping others. So here's what she did. There were many in their community that needed practical physical help. And so once a week, often accompanied by Agnes, Drana, the mother, visited an elderly woman who had been abandoned by her son and she brought food and cleaned the house. She also went on regular visits to a woman named Phile, who was an alcoholic and covered in sores and was very ill. 
Twice a day, Drana washed Philae and cared for her, and often Agnes helped her. And another, yet another who looked forward to visits from Drana was a widow whose health was failing and who was struggling to bring up six children. When she was not able to visit, she sent Agnes, and when the widow died, the children were welcomed into their home as part of the family. This object lesson in love was to shape the rest of Agnes's life, who of course eventually became known as Mother Teresa. I could not believe it when I read that her mother not only visited the poorest of the poor, but she washed their wounds, she cleaned their homes, she made them food and fed them and cared for them in very hands-on ways. I often wondered how Mother Teresa felt so drawn to the poorest of the poor. And you know, sometimes we think of these things and we, we look at it from a surface perspective. We don't have the whole picture and we think, oh, she just had this compassion for them. But actually she had been trained from a young age in a very practical way. She wasn't afraid of the poor. It was a very familiar thing, a very common thing for her to visit very, very poor people and to care for them physically. And so when eventually she felt the second call, what she called the call within a call, she did what she had done as a girl, what was very familiar to her, what she knew how to do and had been trained to do. And that was to go into the homes of the poor and look around and see their needs and take care of them. I was just absolutely blown away. Um, now about Agnes, she was kind of sickly. She was a very fragile child. She was susceptible to malaria and whooping cough. And there was a, a special place where the family would go and visit a sanctuary for about a month in the year and spend time together as a family. And her older sister would take her for long walks and, um, see that she had enough rest, but she really just wanted to read. She would read all day if she was left to her own. These trips that the family went on were the happiest of times. She absolutely loved it. They walked together and played games and um, went to the Letnus Springs and and so on. She was very, very close to her family. They had a very happy family life. And I mean, you can imagine education is very high priority. They study hard in school and in the evenings they spend their spare time visiting many of the poor in the neighborhood or playing games together, singing together, telling stories together. Uh, just a very happy life grounded on very many true principles, living these laws of life mission. She also um, was a very devoted Christian from a very early age. She felt the love of God. She loved to pray. She was often found kneeling before the statue of the sacred heart. Um, and she was also very obedient in her home. She, whenever she was asked to do anything, she would immediately do it. There was a, her brother talks about how they were required to clean the shoes and he absolutely hated that job. And so lots of times he'd ask Agnes to do his part for him and she would just do it. Um, she was a very dutiful, aware child and obedient, a good sister and just, just, a. Just a very teachable, hardworking girl from a young age. Now, she wasn't perfect. I'm sure she had lessons to learn and ways that she needed to grow. But her obedient, compliant temperament 
helped her to embrace these true principles that she was taught in her home so that by the time she heard this first call and left home at 18, she was already a woman very grounded in those um, first foundational laws of mission. Now, when she was a a youth, um, she loved to get this magazine called Catholic Missions. She devoured the magazines and newspapers, which the church distributed. They contained regular reports from Croatian and Slovene missionaries working in Calcutta, which of course is where she would end up. Those who knew her as a teenager have said that the magazine was an inspiration to her. It fired her enthusiasm and developed her vocation. And so she just really inhaled all this information and loved the idea of helping in that way and uh, and thought about it often. She had a lot of talents that she took time to develop as a youth. She was a gifted student, very gifted academically, and studied very hard in school. In fact, she was so gifted academically, it was one of the reasons why people were so surprised when she decided to become a nun, because they felt kind of like with Albert Schweitzer that she was leaving behind these talents that she wouldn't be able to use as a nun and they felt that she was making a big mistake. Um, She also was very musical. She sang and played instruments and would give impromptu concerts when they had um, guests. She, her dad had started a musical group called The Voice of the Mountains. And so music had been important to him too. And he had just done all this good in the community. She'd watched him do all those kinds of things. Her brother had taught her the mandolin. And maybe it was somebody else taught her the mandolin. She learned quickly and became a good player. She was in the choir. She um, spent time with composers. So music was a huge part of her life. She was very talented at it. She was also passionately fond of poetry. She actually wrote poems of her own and read them to other people. Uh, Someone said about her, she was the sort of person everyone liked to be with, especially the girls. And even at a young age, they noticed that she was a born organizer and leader. She was able to rally people around projects she was interested in. She rose to leadership positions in her school and people always looked up to her and and wanted to be with her and follow her example. Her brother Laser said she never refused to do anything for her parents that she that he could remember. And by the time she was 12, amazingly enough, she started to think about being a nun. And for 6 years, she said for 6 years I thought and prayed about it. Sometimes I doubted that I had a vocation at all, but in the end, I had the assurance that God was really calling me. So for two, for six years, she thinks about it for the last two years between 16 and 18, she actually goes on several retreats where she spends a lot of time with God and in prayer and in meditation. I mean, this was not something she did lightly. She was very mature. I mean, even mature for her age in her own time, but of course, far more mature than many youth today. And she spent a lot of time getting counsel from the people around her, spending time in these magazines, imagining what it would be like, trying to be honest and trying to really petitioning God to find out if this, it was the right calling for her. I loved this part. She went to one of her um, Catholic leaders. She went to her father confessor one day and asked him, how can I know 
whether God is really calling me and if so, what he is calling me to do. And I just absolutely loved this answer that he gave her. You can know by how you feel about it. If the thought that God may be calling you to serve him in your neighbor makes you happy, then that may be the very best proof of the genuineness of your vocation. Joy that comes from the depths of your being is like a compass by which you can tell what direction your life should follow. That is the case even when the road you must take is a difficult one. And of course, like um, I talked about in, in going over the seven laws of life mission, once you hear that call and once you know, once she received that confirmation that yes, indeed, God was calling her, she had opposition from the people closest to her <laughs> as Albert Schweitzer had. And even though her family was very loving and wonderful, they, you know, she was going to have to cut herself off from them and she just wasn't going to become a nun. She was going to leave her country and she didn't know it at the time, but what it meant was that she would never see her mother again. And so she was going to make a huge sacrifice and her brother thought it was a terrible idea. He wrote to her, um, he said, when he heard she had decided to become a nun, he wrote to her immediately. How could she do such a thing? Did she know what she was doing, sacrificing herself for the rest of her life, burying herself alive in the middle of nowhere? Again, this opposition that you're too gifted, you're too smart, you're too much of a leader to leave behind these opportunities around you and just go out and, and sit in a convent the rest of your life, which of course was not at all what she did. And she rebuked her brother. I mean, her closeness to God and her commitment to her calling really comes through in this letter she wrote to him. She said, you think you are important because you're an officer serving a king of two million subjects, but I am serving the king of the whole world. Which of us do you think is in the better place? And Lazar was a good enough man, close enough to God and loved his sister enough that he honestly considered what she said. He thought about it for some time and conceded that the decision his sister has made was not such a strange one after all. She also received some opposition from her mom. Her mother didn't try to talk her out of it, but she took a long time in giving her consent. And Agnes did not want to go without the consent of her mother. She, her mother wanted to be absolutely sure that the vocation was a genuine one and given by God. When she finally had her answer and she'd won her mother over, drawn as advice, stayed with her for the rest of her life, she said, daughter, go with my blessing, but strive to live only all for God and for Jesus. So she wanted her, she told her, whatever endeavor you undertake, do it with your whole heart. So then, of course, there's a preparation phase, like there always is, as I talk about in the book as well, that she had to prepare herself. And the preparation was quite extensive. First of all, she had to apply to the order of the Loretto nuns and seek admission to the order. And then she had to go to the mother house in Dublin and learn English and receive training there. So that was the first step. And she was going to have to leave behind her family and all her friends. There, in fact, were so many people that loved and respected her. There were over a hundred people at the dock when she said goodbye. When she got there, she was, she could, had the opportunity to determine a new name for herself. And she had learned about, um, Mary Teresa, uh, sister Mary Teresa and loved her. And so she named herself, 
uh, Sister Mary Teresa of the Child Jesus. And, and was known as Mother Teresa for the rest of her life. So she was there for several months. And then she had to um, leave from there and spend two years. So then she was a novitiate and she had to, um, no, she had to do two years in training to become a novitiate. And so then she had to do that for two years. And then she had to be an novitiate for six years and finally took her vows over eight years in after she'd left home to become a nun. Now, not only did she have this experience as a child with her mother going into the homes of the poor, but she also visited hospitals and on a regular basis all through her adult life and noticed the poverty there and encouraged in her letter home, letters home for people to be grateful for their blessings and to know how much they had, um, how much they had and how much they had to be grateful for. I wanted to tell you, uh, as part of this preparation, she was living in Bengali for a little while. Um, this is a couple years in, and they they printed this in the Catholic Missions magazine. She wrote home about her experience in visiting the hospital. She says um, that each morning before I start work, I look at the picture of Jesus. In it is concentrated everything that I feel, I think, Jesus, it is for you and for these souls. And then I open the door. The tiny veranda is always full of the sick, the wretched, and the miserable. All eyes are fixed, full of hope on me. Mothers give me their sick children, their gestures mirroring those in the picture of the pharmacy. My heart beats in happiness. I continue your work, dear Jesus. I can ease many sorrows. I console them and treat them, repeating the words of the best friend of souls. Some of them I even take to church. She goes on to talk about one day when she was there and a man came with a bundle in his arms with, with what she called two dry twigs protruding and they were the legs of a child. She says, the little boy was very weak. I realize he is near to death and hurry to bring holy water. The man is afraid that we do not want to take the child and says, if you do not want him, I will throw him into the grass. The jackals will not turn up their noses at him. My heart freezes. The poor child, weak and blind, totally blind, with much pity and love, I take the little one into my arms and fold him in my apron. The child has found a second mother. Who receives a child receives me, said the divine friend of all little ones. The incident of the blind child is the crowning point of my working day. So once she heads to Calcutta, she, is, she becomes a teacher of geography and history. And for many years, until she um, takes her vows, she is a teacher in a school for wealthy for the for the girls of of the wealthy in the city, and she loves it there. She loves the girls. She already has a good foundation to her education, but again, not only is she living out this first call of mission but she is preparing herself for the second call. And from the time of the first call to the second call, 17 years go by in which she deepens her education. She deepens her relationship with God. Remember in the book, when I talk about cycling back and going deeper in those four foundational laws, her love of self, her, her, her self, her devotion to true principles and understanding them. Now her mind expands to understanding government, economics, history, the cycles of history, all of those kinds of things. 
And then she is made the principal of the school and serves as the principal of the school, I think for 10 years. And so she's in this incredibly important leadership position and still doing her work as, as, um, as a, as a teacher, as a leader, getting her education. And every Sunday she visits the poor in the hospitals and she's loving what she's doing and she loves the girls. But over time, more and more, this feeling is coming back to her of, but what about the poor? What about the poor? And, um, her heart really is with them and that desire to serve them is growing. And then one day she writes a letter home to her mother. She says, I'm sorry not to be with you, but be happy, dearest mother, because your Agnes is happy. This is a new life. Our center here is very fine. I'm a teacher and I love the work. I'm also head of the whole school and everybody wishes me well here. Her mother's reply was characteristic. With acute perception, she prompted her daughter to sort out her priorities. <laughs> so she's already given her life to God. She's given up family life, which was the greatest joy of all to her. She won't ever have a husband or children of her own. She doesn't have the joy of living in a family setting, but she loves what she does in this school and she's very good at it. And people look up to her and she's having so much joy with God, but her mother reminds her of what's even more important. She says, dear child, do not forget that you went out to India for the sake of the poor. Do you remember our filet? She was covered in sores, but what made her suffer much more was the knowledge that she was alone in the world. We did what we could for her, but the worst thing was not the sores. It was the fact that she had been forgotten by her family. During the years that followed, Mother Teresa was drawn irresistibly to a startling conclusion, the author goes on. She loved her work at the school. She had worked there for many years. She had kept busy, never sparing herself, but she became more and more concerned about the wretchedness of the poor. They're facing death from leprosy and hunger. So then the call within a call comes. She remembers the exact day. It was on the 10th of September, and um, she had gone on a retreat with uh, the missionaries, uh, she, oh yeah, the 10th of September, she had gone on a retreat and she said, this is how it happened. I was traveling to Darjeeling by, by train when I heard the voice of God. When I asked, and, and, and this priest asks her how she heard his voice above the noise of the rattling train, she replied with a smile, I was sure it was God's voice. I was certain he was calling me. The message was clear. I must leave the convent to help the poor by living among them. This was a command, something to be done, something definite. I knew where I had to be, but I did not know how to get there. So over time, she had to, she had to win over her archbishop so that he would give sanction and that he would write letters of endorsement uh, to the Pope because she had to have the Pope's permission because she had to stay a nun while not living in the convent. And so she had to have a special exception made for her. And for a year, she prayed and fasted and hoped that the permission would be granted that she could win people over. And she finally received the letter. In fact, in the application, um, 
she had written, God has called on me to leave everything and give myself up to him in order to serve the poorest of the poor in the slums of the city. So when the second call came, of course, it's again the same kind of experience. She has opposition. The archbishop and other people around her think she's crazy. They don't think she should do it. How can she know it's really God? They're questioning her. And when she finally wins them over, she has to rally their support and win over the Pope. <laughs> You know, have an exception made for her. And she has to continue to exercise this faith. She has to have such a strong relationship with God that she knows beyond doubt. This is what he's asking her to do. She said that she knew God would help her because she knew it was God's work. And so she knew that it would be successful. Um, she said, what matters is that God calls each of us in a different way. It is no credit to us that he does so. What matters is that we should answer the call. In those difficult, dramatic days, I was certain that this was God's doing and not mine, and I am still certain. And it was the work of God. I knew that the world would benefit from it. And so it has been. I think of Elizabeth's words to Mary. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. That was her testimony, that she knew when God was talking to her, and she was determined to answer the call despite the opposition. So again, she overcomes opposition. Again, she goes into preparation. She has to find a place to live. She has to get funding together. She has to go out into the streets, and she's not sure how to start. So she starts by educating children, which turns into a school of 5,000 eventually. And she has to get, you know, um, other you know, postulates and other women to come and help her in her work. And then she has to write up her orders of, um, what are they called? Her, her orders of her, um, of her group of her new order, the religious orders, um, to obtain the Holy See's permission for founding a new order. So she called it the missionaries of charity, of course. And and had to write up those orders and get permission to start a new order. And on and on it went um, against opposition and in the face of new preparations and new hard work, really almost starting over, but starting over in a new place, having really sunk her roots so much deeper in those four foundational laws with an even better understanding. You know, I think often of that education in history and in leadership. At one point it talks about when she went away and came back to the school, it was all, everybody was at each other's throats. There was so much contention and disorder in the school while she'd been away. And she had to, to use her diplomacy skills to win everyone to, um, to, to the right side and to get everyone, um, unified again. I just think of all those experiences in education and in the real world that gave her the diplomacy skills she needed, you know, think of all that she understood about other religions and of, of different nations and of their histories and of their leadership, everything she understood about government and how it works and economies, because she had to work in the real world. She had to find properties. She had to get governments to cooperate with her. She had to win people over again and again. And it wasn't just God with her. That was the first and most critical aspect of it. But the bigger picture was the skill set she developed over time through that um, education and life experience that she had that second 17 years. It was almost like 18 years to do the first call and then 18 years to do the second call. 
And then of course she did that for the rest of her life. And there's, I don't even know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of missions, uh, of her missions all across the world now, helping the poorest of the poor. And uh, just, just absolutely amazing story. Of course, in 1979, she won the Nobel Prize. She didn't want to accept it, but was finally persuaded to accept it in the name of the poor and spoke in their behalf and pleaded with the world to learn about their own poor and care for them. And then in 1994, she was invited to the United States to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast. And you can find that speech online. We can link a couple of those resources and speeches to our show notes, which we'll do on the, on the website page at themissiondrivenmom.com. And in that speech, she had the opportunity, you know, the world was listening at this national prayer breakfast and she chose to speak on abortion and the U.S. policy that was pro-abortion is still pro-abortion. And this is one, one quote from that speech. If we tell mothers they can kill their own child, how can we tell others not to kill one another? And she talked about how we cannot be a moral society and serve God and choose Christ unless we stop killing our own children. And so that whole speech was on abortion. It's absolutely amazing. She is a woman who inspires me to be more, inspires me to think outside of, of myself, outside of my home. Um, this was her advice to those who want to begin. She says, do you love your own poor? My dear people, do you know that even here at home there are poor? There are people who live alone in cellars. Did you know that? Did you... Do you know and love the poor? If you do not know them, how can you love them? Start in your own homes, in your own families, at home. Start there and God will help you. She also reminds us that we are called upon not to be successful, but to be faithful and that our mission is to convey God's love. So that is some words of wisdom from one of the greatest women that's ever lived. Her absolute devotion to truth and obedience to God has absolutely changed the world and millions upon millions of lives, including mine. I cannot um, speak about her without feeling moved myself and inspired and wanting to do more and be more. So learn more about her. We'll link some good resources for you and make sure and go get your copy of the Mission Driven Life and you can better understand those seven laws that I've referenced throughout this podcast and begin engaging in those seven laws yourself and living them. Remember to subscribe and review and share this out if it was helpful to you and I will see you next time.